A shift is taking place in markets. A low interest rate, high growth environment has been the general experience for most investors over the past decade. As with all things in life, markets also go through cycles. PSG Wealth has been warning of this shift for some time now, and that shift is now clear for most to see. But there are other material shifts we can expect over the next decade, shifts that investors need to be prepared for. To discuss this, we're joined by Adrian Pask, who is Chief Investment Officer at PSG Wealth. Hi, Adrian. There are a few signals pointing to a shift in markets. Over the last decade, investors have experienced some specific market behaviors. Explain what the market looked like in the past decade. Thank you, Kieran. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, the, the last 10 years or so have been somewhat unique and quite different to what we saw in the first 10 years of this century. And we think it's going to be materially different to the next 10 years as well. And why that second 10-year period from the 2010s on to 2020 was so unique is that the cost of capital was quite low. So interest rates on aggregate were below 1%. So there was a lot of stimulus around. If you look at the first 10 years of, of the century, um, we had a cost of capital above 3%. So it sounds like small changes, but the impact downstream is actually quite significant. So you would see this impact investments and, and equities in particular is on, on profit margin growth. So if you look at the S&P 500 for the first 10 years, it was roughly around that 7% level. We, we now, the last 10 years that we've seen, it, it was uh, 10% on, on average, and it, it's currently around that peak levels of, of around 13%. At the same time, we saw projected growth rates for, for U.S. stocks increase significantly on, on the back of that. Uh, and then as well, the cost of capital is obviously also a proxy for the, the discount rate. So essentially how you, how you value stocks. So with that in mind, higher multiples were perfectly justifiable. So you saw in the, the, the top 10 of the S&P 500, for example, in the first 10 years, we're trading at around 11p. I, I don't even think many people can recall those days. We, we're offshore stocks. We're trading at, at low double digits. I mean, 11 seems incredibly low. We would be incredibly fortunate to, to have such levels uh, now. But where we do stand now is, is closer to that 27 times. Um, so significantly more expensive um, as a sentiment towards uh, U.S. equities in particular over the last 10 years have been very, very good. And that's exactly the component that we think is going to change. So what we see now is, is multiple expansions. So PE ratios moved from 11 times to 27 times, as, as I've said. Um, and also the larger companies in the index have done quite well. So for a long period of time, our audience will know we refer to these as, as FANG stocks, all the stocks that experience lots of growth. Tech-type companies were really in, in quite a bit of favor. And the concentration levels on the S&P 500 typically makes for a good proxy for how much risk there is uh, in the index. So in, in 2010, that those top 10 stocks really constituted 18% um, of the index weighting. And where we stand at the moment is, is closer to 30%. So significant changes there, but that is all still justifiable if you can look at the earnings and say, well, uh, is, is the earnings there or, or has the prices run ahead of earnings? Now, if we go back to 2010, I mentioned that the top 10 stocks constituted 18%, but if you look at the earnings contribution was around 17%, so quite closely aligned. Where we are now in terms of earnings contributions, it's around 20% versus the, the 30% index weight. 
So what this implies is that prices have moved fundamentally significantly above the earnings contributions that are coming out of those firms. So there's this dislocation between earnings and valuation, and that means risk has significantly increased. So the last 10 years have been fantastic on, on the back of that. As, as these multiples expanded and stocks got more expensive, obviously investors benefited from, from higher share prices. So that's really the, the last 10 years that we've seen that we think is, is quite unique. Okay, so there is this dislocation between earnings and valuations, and yet a lot of investors seem to believe this same pattern will continue indefinitely. Now, you believe there is a material shift or several shifts that are taking place. What are the top three shifts you believe investors should be aware of? Well, I think essentially there's actually only one key change, but the consequences of that creates a domino effect. Um, and the key change that I'm referring to is high interest rates. Um, and, and we've seen what the Fed has done. We've seen inflation rates around the world escalate. We've seen the monetary policy makers start to escalate uh, interest rates. Even in South Africa, we've seen the NPC also announce that they're making changes and there's more expected. But what that really means is obviously a high interest rate puts a damper on the economy. So you would expect to see lower sales volumes come through as consumers feel the squeeze. And then also lower profit margins because the financing cost that these firms have to pay to acquire capital to grow is, is increasing in, in line with interest rates. And obviously with that, um, you've got additional pressures from wages. Uh, taxes are likely to go up because we see the debt to GDP ratios totally explode out. I mean, where the U.S. is at the moment um, nearing 140% debt to GDP means there's very little room for them to provide further tax relief. If anything, it's going to go into the opposite direction. And all these things really impact profit margins. So less for profits in general. And I think that the second phase of that narrative is really a rolling off of, of good sentiment. So we'll see poorer sentiment um, in the coming 10 years as, as the outlook softens quite a bit. And then the most important thing, um, I've mentioned now a, a few times the ratings, and I think that's something that's going to retreat as well. So we'll see, in general, lower multiples. When everything's going well and, and there's a lot of easy money in the economy, you can justify uh, higher multiples, maybe not as high as the 27 that we're currently seeing, um, but higher multiples than the 11 times that we experienced in the first 10 years. So the question is really, where should that multiple be? If you sit in an environment where interest rates are moving up, there's a lot of pressure on, on costs, um, and generally sentiment is, is, is receding. And, and from that, obviously, we see stock prices adjust. So I think it's going to be largely driven by a, a derating impact through interest rates, which is the core, core component um, for everybody to see. I, I don't even think that's obviously uh, big news for everybody. I think the, the real trick is to make an accurate assessment of what the consequences of that will be on profits and sentiment and multiples downstream. I mean, that brings us back to this is old saying, and you've repeated this several times, quality businesses make for good investments. Is that a myth or is there some reality to that? I think quality as an investment strategy has, has worked quite well. So businesses that generate high volumes of cash, typically their return on capital is good in excess of uh, the cost of capital. Um, but what we see now is there's more pressure on, on these businesses to, to sustain higher cash flow because the cost of capital is going up. Um, and obviously, the, the margin of, of error um, is significantly de decreasing. 
Um, it, it always helps to try and illustrate this 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 point by way of example. So if you look at something like Microsoft, for example, it's a, it's a fantastic company with a good long-term track record. But if we look at what the share price was in the mid-90s, uh, you, you could pick up Microsoft stocks for $5 a share. Unbelievable. And and investors obviously recognize that this is a great business. It's on the right side of where the future is going in, in terms of you know using technology to become more efficient. There's a lot of demand around. So it really feels like it's a well-managed business with a great product, a lot of cash flow coming through. But actually what happened um, following that early 2000s obviously was the, the, the tech crash. So what we saw in the 12 months over that period is that the share price up to $25 a stock. But that isn't actually the worst news. The, the problem is if you go into shares at these elevated levels is, is you can wait a long time to make your money back. In, in Microsoft's case, um, it took 16 years to, to get back to $50 a share. That only now recently happened. In 2016, it doesn't feel like that because these tech stocks have done so well in, in recent periods. But essentially, if you invested at that time under the narrative that there's a fantastic quality business, it will continue to grow and make money, all those things were accurate. The problem is you overpaid. You paid $50 a share and you had to wait 16 years for it to come back to that level. And only recently you started to make money out of that. So there's a significant opportunity cost there. Uh, involved as soon as you start to overpay, it significantly pushes out the required investment horizon for uh, for for that stock. So so really important. I think the the key is here that investors have become increasingly casual about what, about what they pay for earnings and what's being generated as profits out of these businesses. Um, and and it's good if you can look into the future and say, well, there's a lot of growth on the cost, but you have to ask yourself how much growth is currently priced into these businesses. Because if that growth is if that growth is already priced in, then there isn't really an opportunity there. You're hundred percent correct in terms of the narrative the company's gonna do well, but it's common knowledge and therefore the price is already reflecting that and doesn't necessarily make it a, a good investment. Okay, you mentioned that offshore bonds will not be able to offset an investors' losses on offshore equities during market turbulence. Just elaborate what you mean by that. Yeah, it, I think it's a fundamental shift in the way that offshore portfolios have been managed. So I think offshore, we, we always see these 60-40 multi-asset uh, portfolios where 60% of the assets are invested in equities and 40% in bonds. And the the first principle that was applied there in constructing that type of product was that should your 60% in equities suffer pain, we should expect a flight to safety, a flight to bond uh, uh, bond investments, and therefore we should see um, that the bond yields decline and, and you make money off your bonds, which will provide a buffer. But in the current environment, and we've actually seen this now in the first few months of the year already, is that if bond yields are already so low, investors shouldn't expect them to, to go down further because they simply can't. And, and what we have seen now in the first six months is, yes, there's been pressure on the S&P and offshore starts. But bonds haven't helped. In fact, bond yields have, have um, moved up, uh, which means that bond yields have suffered at the same time that equities have suffered. So that brings a very important question into play in terms of what are you going to do to manage risk in your offshore portfolio to offset losses on equities over the short term? And that's a really important question to be able to answer. And also how you assess the risks then, um, because the risk landscape has completely changed. And the range of outcomes for portfolios have significantly widened. 
because you don't have that narrowing of performance, um, the one asset offsetting the other. So I think in the offshore space, investors have a significant challenge on their hands to try and build a well-diversified portfolio that will offset risk, especially if you sit in an environment where uh, asset classes are generally quite expensive. So South Africa has been out of favor for a while. Um, we made a good recovery out of COVID, but there's still so many things that everybody is uncertain about. But quite similar to what I mentioned on quality and Microsoft and how not everything that looks good performs well as an investment. The counter to that, if you look at look at it from the other perspective, is to say, well, not everything that looks poor makes for a poor investment as well. And I think South Africa is, is almost the antithesis of where we stand with the US, for example, because we do have many issues, but our asset prices are reflecting terrible news, uh, both in bonds and in equities. And therein lies the opportunity, if you're willing to embrace the, the risk and uncertainty that comes with that. Okay. And there is quite a lot of confusion around the RAND, a lot of people saying it's a one-way bet. What's your view on that? Well, the RAND should depreciate under normalized inflation conditions and when capital is fairly well spread globally. But currently, U.S. inflation is at multi-decade highs, and we've seen this through other developed markets as well, and even in South Africa. The, the, the thing is, the inflation numbers are now also stickier than what was expected. So in that type of scenario, you can actually think that the dollar should depreciate, um, which means that the relative strengths versus the RAND the rand could actually quite be, be quite stronger versus the dollar. So it's not necessarily a rand story as much as what it is a U.S. story. Um, so you can imagine, for example, um, if we had inflation numbers to, to, to the levels where the U.S. is experiencing the inflation numbers, where our interest rates would be. And then you start to think, well, let's look at the debt-to-GBP numbers that's currently in the U.S. as well, and, and that doesn't look great either. If South Africa was in that situation, our currency would be significantly lower. I mean, our debt-to-GDP is now under 70%, and, and yet the assets are cheap, re- reflecting complete chaos. So long story short, I'm somewhat of a, of a lone voice, I think, on this one, but I think the dollar is set to disappoint, and, and the rand goes through a period of strength. Um, its currency is in the end, so only time will tell. But I do think if you look at the fundamentals of what's happening in the economies and how much positive sentiment there still remains in the U.S., in spite of all the volatility that we've seen over the short term, there's still very high levels of capital stuck between U.S. borders. And we think if that capital starts to move out to other areas, the dollar could take some pain. And obviously, the inflation and interest rate outlook um, just further supports that view. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball and say, how should we or investors prepare for the next decade? Yeah, how do I wish I, I had that crystal ball? Um, but I can give you a sense of what we've been doing in our own business in terms of preparing for the, the next decade. I think, first and foremost, investors need to have more realistic expectations in terms of offshore investing. The last 10 years have been absolutely fantastic, but you will be making a massive mistake if you think that that will continue over the next 10 years. Things have fundamentally changed. The backdrop has changed a lot. So it's highly unlikely that we'll see anything close to that. That's not to say that we shouldn't be investing offshore because investing offshore still brings a valuable diversification component. So we go back to the events like Nenegates, et cetera, where the the rand blows out, um, or bigger global events. Um, where we see some dollar strength. 
so, so that remains quite, um, quite important. So we continue to maintain offshore exposure, but our, our expectations are a lot lower for the asset class. And we think investors need to embrace risk in the local markets. Um, there is a lot of uncertainty, but within that lies a, a lot of opportunity. So um, those would be the two key things uh, from, from my perspective in terms of how you prepare for, for the next decade. Adrian Pask, Chief Investment Officer at PSG Wealth. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, Adrian, for joining us this morning.